1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start reading in verse number 20 today. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will, be also, will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Jump down to verse number 35. Verse number 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Oh, Father God, we're so thankful for this wonderful, wonderful chapter in your word. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our midst. Fill me, help me, Lord God, to be clear and accurate and, and only say those things that you have said from this pulpit today. And uh, Lord, I pray you'd be our teacher and just help us to understand when we think about the resurrection. So many questions, so many questions. And there certainly seem to be questions here in Corinth. And I'm sure there's questions here in Randolph too. So help us, I pray, as we ask ourselves the same thing. That uh, they asked, how, uh, how are the dead raised? Would you speak to us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you recall, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is usually referred to as the resurrection chapter because the entirety of this chapter is dealing with that topic. It's one of those places in the Bible where you can go and one particular topic is dealt with more fully than any place else. The resurrection is dealt with in chapter 15, probably more than any place else in the Bible, hence 
it's referred to as the resurrection chapter. Now, we've already looked at several things here. Uh, we've been skipping around here and, and pulling out various different ways of looking at the resurrection. Uh, in our first look at the chapter, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of it, you'll see what we talked about at the very beginning. Uh, we talked about the fact that the gospel which is described here in the first few verses and consists of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the eyewitness testimony, the eyewitness accounts of those who saw Christ alive. That gospel is of first importance, the most important thing that we have to proclaim or that we have to hear. And of course we got that from verse number three. When Paul said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and then it goes on and talks about a whole bunch of others that he was seen by. That little phrase, I delivered to you first of all, we learned really means of first importance, the most important thing. It is first in chronology, in that it's the first message we must hear if we're going to come to Christ. We need to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it is also the first in importance and priority. It's just simply the most important message that we have to proclaim. And the resurrection, you'll notice, is a key component of that. The death, the burial, the resurrection, and the eyewitness accounts are the gospel. You can't leave out any one of those things. They're all three, uh, all four, key to the gospel. Well, and then in another sermon, we learned something else about the resurrection. We learned that the resurrection of Christ is a necessary component of saving faith, or rather belief in the resurrection of Christ is a, is a necessary component of saving faith. Uh, Paul spent an awful lot of time in this chapter and, and, and a lot of ink in this chapter, making the point that if you take the resurrection away, there's nothing left. If you take the resurrection away... There is no Christianity. There's nothing that differentiates Christianity from any other thing. The resurrection is key. It is central. And without it, the entire belief system crumbles. There's nothing. He taught the same thing other places. He taught, for example, in Romans, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not that he was a good man or a good teacher or any of that kind of stuff. Not even that he died on the cross, none of that, that he raised him from the dead. It's a key component in our salvation. Therefore, we learned that we need to believe in the resurrection of Christ if we would be saved. Well, I think we talked about a couple of other things. I think we were in this chapter over Thanksgiving, and so we, we went down through here and we pulled a lot of things out that we could be thankful for, and I, I won't go through that again. But today I want us to conclude it, and, and I want us to conclude it by looking at the the nitty-gritty of the thing. How does this resurrection thing work? How are the dead raised? But before we go there, because it is the last time we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for a while, I want you to notice a couple of other cool things that don't really fit into my main theme today, but I just want to pull them out and point them out to you because they're, they're really some interesting things. Notice, for example, in verse number 20. I want you to notice that there are two different pictures given here of what it is, what it means for a Christian to die. In verse number 20, it is the picture of sleep. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then look at verse number 42. Verse number 42 is another picture of what it means for the Christian to die. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. And so we have these two wonderful pictures of what it means for the believer to die. It means to fall asleep. It means to be sown like a seed is being sown into the soil. 
And I don't know about you, but both of those are encouraging to me. The one is extremely comforting to me to realize that to, to die as a believer is just no different than falling asleep. I haven't been sleeping very well lately, so I, I, I would like to fall asleep. But just, just think of it. Doesn't that comfort you whenever you think about the fact that a loved one has gone on to be with the Lord? The Bible here says, and it says it in other places as well, that it's just no different than falling asleep. We wake, we fall asleep here. We wake up in the presence of the Lord. You know, Jesus one time raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. She was dead, and he came to them and raised her from the dead. And, and, and he described her condition as being asleep. He said in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 24, he said, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And, of course, they laughed him to scorn, the Bible says. But it was true. She was but asleep. And all believers who die are just sleeping. And the other picture, I think, is a wonderful picture, too. That of being sown in the earth. And we're going to talk about it more in just a moment. But just think about what that means. It, it, it has such a hope for the future. So, so much anticipation for what results from the death of the believer. And what you have to look forward to. But hold that thought, because we'll come back to it in a minute. But I wanted us to see there are two wonderful pictures of what it means for the believer to die. There are also two very important historical figures mentioned in these verses, and we're not going to dig into them in great detail, but I, I want to mention them because they are mentioned here and they're important. One is Adam and one is Christ. One is Adam. Adam is the first man and the one through whom sin and death and destruction has come upon us all. Everybody is affected by Adam. The other is Christ, the second Adam, through whom redemption from Adam's sin comes upon all those who believe. I don't think any two men in history are more important than Adam and Christ. We could spend some more time on that. We could go and look at Romans chapter 5. I think just last week in the Leadership Training Institute, didn't we talk about Romans chapter 5? In the Leadership Training, we talked about these very things. So we won't spend a lot of time on it now. But it's interesting, is it not? Two such important men mentioned here. And then there's other one other thing that kind of flows out of that, which is there are two realities mentioned here. And kind of mentioned in, in the same section where it's talking about these two men. There is the reality that you can be in Adam and or you can be in Christ. Two states, two realities. All of us are born in Adam. All human beings are in Adam. We are guilty because of the fact that we are in Adam. But all of those uh, who trust in Christ can be made alive, verse number 22 says, in Christ. And so, again, I just, I'm not going to spend any time on those, but it's interesting to think about. Something for you to study on your own. The two realities that you're in Adam or in Christ. Well, the thing that I want us to think, to see, is that there are two truths about the resurrection here. And that's, that's where I really want us to go. Two very practical truths. When does it occur? And how? Does it occur? And I want us to get it just as practical as we can about this uh, this morning. The first section we read, verses 20 through 28, I think talks about when it occurs. And the second section we read, verses 35 through 49, talks about how it occurs. First of all, when? When does the resurrection occur? And, and, and don't you wonder sometimes? Don't you ask yourself that question? When? When is God going to do it? Well, there's a few clues here. Verse number 20 tells me, for example, that it has already begun in Christ. Christ, verse number 20 says, is the first fruits. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was the first and he is the only one who has been resurrected so far. 
You say, uh uh-uh, what about Jairus' daughter? You just mentioned Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter died again. I sometimes wonder what that must have been like. You, You have to go through death more than once. Lazarus, same thing. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but that's not resurrection. Lazarus died again. The only person who has ever been resurrected, never to die again, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits, the first one uh, to have had that happen. And as such, he is not only the first example of the promised resurrection that we look forward to, but he is also the guarantee of it for you and I. All those things are contained in that word, first fruits. So, when is it going to occur? Well, it's already begun in Christ. For you and me, this passage tells me, it will happen for us, for the saved, at the rapture. Look at verse number 23. Each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. And I say that is the rapture because I think we have another passage which clarifies it even more. You can flip over to 1 Thessalonians if you want. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and I'll read it to you. You can follow along if you want. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. There it is again. Death is sleep for the Christian. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's that resurrection, I believe. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so it has already begun in Christ. He is the first fruits. It will happen for the believer at the rapture. But what about the lost? When does it happen for the lost? Because, you know, the Bible's interesting. Jesus made it very, very clear that there is a resurrection for both the saved and the lost. He said it in John chapter 5. He said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. John 5, 28, 29. So when is that resurrection of condemnation? When is that that the lost, the unbelievers, will be resurrected? Well, I think our text tells us that too. I think it's at the end of the millennial kingdom. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, I suppose people could interpret that in different ways, but those verses certainly look to me like they're referring to the millennium. The millennium, the thousand-year period of time, described in Revelation chapter 20. When Jesus, after the rapture, he comes back in the rapture, there's a seven-year period of tribulation, then he comes back, establishes an actual kingdom, centered in Jerusalem and rules for a thousand years of peace on this earth. The millennium, so-called because uh, millennium is from two Latin words, thousand years. We get that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part. In the first resurrection. And so the resurrection of the saved takes place at the rapture. The resurrection of the lost takes place a thousand and seven years later at the end of the millennium. And we see that also in Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years have expired, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. 
from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The dead there is referring to the lost who have, those who have died without Christ. So there's the order. Christ the first fruits, then Christ's own, the saved at the rapture, and then those who don't know Christ, the lost, at the end of the millennium. If I have made that just as clear as mud, let me share with you how another uh, better speaker put it uh, in a commentary that I read. Here's what he has to say about it. He said, God has an order, a sequence in the resurrection. Passages like John chapter 5 and Revelation 20 indicate that there is no such thing taught in Scripture as a general resurrection. Or in other words, a time when we all are resurrected, both lost and saved. He goes on. He says, when Jesus Christ returns in the air, he will take his church to heaven. And at that time, raise from the dead all who have trusted him and have died in the faith. And he goes to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Jesus called this the resurrection of life. When Jesus returns to the earth in judgment, then the lost will be raised in the resurrection of damnation. Also John chapter 5. Nobody in the first resurrection will be lost. But nobody in the second resurrection will be saved. When Jesus Christ comes to the earth to judge, he will banish sin for a thousand years and establish his kingdom. Believers will reign with him and share his glory and authority. This this kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament is called the millennium. But even after the millennium, there will be one final rebellion against God, which Jesus Christ will put down by his power. The lost will then be raised, judged, and cast into the lake of fire, and then death itself shall be cast into hell, and the last enemy shall be destroyed. Jesus Christ will have put all things under his feet. He will then turn the kingdom over to the Father, and then the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new earth shall be ushered in. End quote. All those things are close now. They're close. And we as believers, those who are in Christ, we ought to be trembling with excitement about that, shouldn't we? And anticipation for the fact that it is so near to us. Lift up your heads, the songwriter says. Your redemption. And I would add your resurrection. Draw it nigh. Well, that's some thoughts about when. How about how? How does the resurrection occur? And we see that in verses 35 through 49. And I I ask again, don't you sometimes wonder that? How's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? How is is the resurrection going to occur? Don't you wonder sometimes what our resurrected bodies will look like? Will I look like I look now? We were at the choir. I have to tell a story, Jen, sorry. We were at the choir thing the other day at uh, the Clark's house. And afterwards, a few of us were sitting around on the back porch just, just fellowshipping. And little Logan walked up to me. And sat down beside me and patted my belly. And he said, you have a big belly. <laughs> Thank you, Logan, for noticing. I'm hoping that my resurrected body doesn't look like that. I hope not. But it, will it? Will it? Will you still look like you? Will I still look like me? And, and, and what are the mechanics of the thing? How is God going to go about this? How is he going to go about bringing us back to life? If when referring to resurrection, we, we were talking about just uh, a just dead person, someone who has just stopped breathing, their heart has not been beating for the last 30 seconds, it wouldn't be too surprising to us, would it, if God could breathe life back into that? Because our own medical science can do that. I mean, we have all kinds of stories of people who have been just dead, and by the heroic efforts of 
doctors and nurses and others, how they've been brought back. Is that, is that resurrection? Is that what he's talking about here? It can't be because resurrection in the Bible, as described in the Bible, goes far further than that. My Bible tells me, and we just saw it a minute ago in John chapter 5, that all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That can't just refer to those who just died. That refers to people who've been dead for a very long time. When we were in Israel recently, we went to Hebron. And if you go with us, when, Lord willing, we go back in 2014, you might have the opportunity to see Hebron. In Hebron, we stood and we looked at the tombs of Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. Amazing. Those people have been in the ground for a long time. Thousands, thousands of years. How will God do that? How, how will God resurrect bodies that have been dead for thousands of years? If you were to dig down, of course there's a big shrine over top of this thing now, and the actual graves are way down under the ground. If you were to dig down to the actual gravesite, there would be nobody there. It would have decayed and gone back to dust long, long ago. It would have returned, if we want to talk scientifically, it would have returned, you know, all the elements of the, uh, of the body would have returned and gone into the plant life and, and back into the ecosystem. There's nobody there. How is God going to resurrect those who have been gone so long? You know, some of the martyrs of the faith were burned at the stake. Their bodies completely consumed by flame. Many today choose cremation as an option. Bodies completely consumed by a flame. How, how will God do that? How will he raise them, resurrect them when the body is hopelessly destroyed and done away with? How does resurrection work in that case? What about, what about people who die at sea and are buried at sea? Very common with seafaring folks, those who are in the Navy and such. Thousands and thousands of seafaring men and women have been so interred down through history. How's God going to do that? How's God going to resurrect a body that has been scattered by sea life all over the ocean floor? You know, I think the Corinthians were struggling with these very kinds of questions. Look what they said in verse number 35. They said, or the, the, the scripture says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So they had the same kind of questions. And I love Paul's answer. Look at his answer in verse number 36. Foolish one. If you hold the King James Bible, it says, Thou fool. How are the dead raised, Paul? It seems like a perfectly sensible question to ask to me. I mean, I'm sitting here asking it. And Paul's response is, You fool. It's a pretty blunt answer. But he, he doesn't stop there. I like the way Wearsby explains it. Wearsby, well, let me quote. Wearsby says, Paul's reply to this kind of reasoning was very blunt. You fool. But then he made an important point, that resurrection is not reconstruction. And I confess that before I read this, in this particular commentary, I'd never really thought of it this way. Resurrection is not reconstruction. He goes on, he says, nowhere does the Bible teach that at the resurrection God will, quote, put together the pieces, unquote, and return to us our former bodies. And I thought about that, I can't think of a place where it does say that. There is continuity, it is our body. But there is not identity, it is not the same body. End quote. That's very interesting. Very interesting. And a very important distinction. And, and frankly, one that my little pea brain has very difficulty getting around. 
And perhaps Paul uh, intuited that, I don't know, because he, he didn't really explain that any further other than to say, let me give you some examples. Let me give you some illustrations here, which maybe will make it more clear to you. And notice he gives three here. He says in verses 36 through 38, our resurrection is pictured by seed being sown in the ground. We mentioned that a minute ago. Resurrection is pictured by seed. The gardeners and the farmers among us will understand that perfectly what he's saying. He's saying you put a seed in the ground and you're going to get back multiplied results in a few months. But what you're going to get back is not the same thing that you put in the ground. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The seed becomes something marvelously better. And I think that's what Wearsby maybe was saying when he said there is continuity. The results do come from the seed, but there is not identity. It's not the seed per se that comes back. You don't plant a grain of wheat and get a grain of wheat back. Not that same grain of wheat. You get a, what, what is it called? A stalk of wheat? What, what would we call it? I don't know. A wheat plant with wheat on it. You get that back, but you don't get the original seed back. If you plant an ugly old tulip bulb in the ground, and tulip bulbs aren't very pretty things, you don't get that ugly old tulip bulb back. You get a beautiful blooming tulip plant if you did it right. All the things are true, right? God takes the seed that was sown and turns it into something so much better. And so Paul says with the resurrection, if all God did was reassemble our old rotten bodies, there would be no improvement. We'd still have big bellies. There would be, you know, none of that would, that, we don't want that. No, resurrection is so much better. Rather than reconstructing our old selves, he's gonna fashion us an entirely new body suited for heaven. The old gospel song says, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord. I'll have a new life. That's resurrection. But he gives us another illustration here. Look at verse number 39. 39 and 40 where he says resurrection is also pictured by a diversity, the diversity of flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. You know, the Bible is not a scientific book, but it is dead accurate whenever it speaks about a scientific topic. Here's a perfect example. Paul is here pointing out that God has already made variations in types of flesh. He's referring here to the fact that there are dogs and cats and mice and bats. They're all different kinds of animals. Separate kinds, forever different. Cats and dogs do not breed, never have bred, bred and never will breed. They are different kinds. You can't breed a cat and a dog and produce something that's half cat and half dog. You can't do it. When God told Noah to take animals into the ark, he was told to take two of each kind of the birds after their kind of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. When in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he created animals and birds and fish and bugs and everything else after their kind. Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It's interesting to consider the implications of these truths on those who believe in the godless theory of evolution. Because that theory requires that one kind of animal evolve into another kind of animal. Something that has never happened, has never been seen in science. And Paul knew in the first century, and it's mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, is just simply not possible. 
God has created each kind to be separate from the other kinds. But now, with respect to the resurrection, what's he saying? I think he's just simply using that truth as an illustration. He's saying this, if God has already demonstrated that there are different kinds of bodies, is it so difficult to imagine that we will receive a different kind of body in the resurrection? One more picture, verse number 40. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. He says here, resurrection is pictured by variations in the heavenly bodies. And maybe now he's starting to beat a dead horse, I don't know. This is just another way of saying the same thing. Your resurrected body will not be the same as your earthly body. It will be as different as the sun is from the earth, as the stars are from the moon. One man said these illustrations may not answer every question that we have about the resurrection body, but they do give us the assurances that we need. God will give us a glorified body suited to the new life in heaven. It will be as unlike our present body in quality as the glory of the sun is unlike a mushroom in the cellar. We will use this new body to serve and glorify God for all of eternity. We may not understand all of the hows and all of the winds. But we certainly can accept that it's going to be wonderful. And Paul's words at the end here, Paul's words that sum it up, I don't think they can be improved upon. So let's just, let's just read them again. Look at verses 42 and following again and just follow along how he describes it. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised... A spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. First John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that he is revealed. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Hallelujah. Well, you might say that's all very fascinating, preacher. Very interesting technical stuff, but what in the world does it mean to me in the here and now? What impact should this have? Should this have any impact on my day-to-day living? And I would have to reply, I would think so. Yes. This ought to have an impact on us. These truths ought to motivate us as a few other things could. Christians, let me talk to you for a minute. Christians ought to be motivated to higher levels of service because of these things. Greater steadfastness, more stick to Because of these truths. Isn't that what Paul said in the very last verse, in verse number 58, when he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren. Remember, whenever we see the word therefore, we ask, why is the therefore, therefore? Because of all that we've just discussed. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May it be so with you and me. May we be motivated because of the resurrection that is to come. Christians, we ought not to live for this world. When we can live for the next. We ought not to lay up treasures here. 
when we can lay them up there. We ought not to waste time on preparations for the declining years of this rotting body when we can lay up and spend time and look forward to living forever in a resurrected body. Far better is the way Paul described that. Far better. What are you spending your time on? Your money, your talents, your gifts, your abilities. Things that relate to this rotting body? Or things that relate to the resurrected body you're soon to receive? Things that relate to this soon-to-be-gone world? Or things related to the eternal world yet to come? Christian, it ought to change us. It ought to motivate us to serve more completely and more fully. But let me speak to another group. Let me speak to those who are not Christians. Those who have never trusted Christ. The lost. Oh, they ought to be motivated as well. And if there's one of those, or two of those, three of those here this morning, you need to consider what the resurrection means. Because it's a terrifying thing. A terrifying fact that none of it for the lost is good. None of it. To the believer, resurrection is to eternity with Christ. Something to be longed for. To the lost, resurrection is to a Christless eternity in hell. Something to run from. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if some in this room haven't heard the gospel multiplied times. Over and over and stood resolute. Invitation after invitation after invitation has come and gone. No response. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some in this room who have been prayed for by loved ones, spouses, family, friends, pastors, other believers, and yet they resist. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some who seem to think that these things are unimportant, that they're simply philosophical questions and thoughts and things to talk about over a cup of coffee, but they're really not all that important and they're certainly not real. But listen, if that's you, these things are not a myth. These things are not fables. They are not far away. They are upon you. They are imminent and they are real and they are eternal in their import. And if you continue to ignore the claims of God on you, the claims of Christ on your life, then you need to know that your procrastination will find you rotting in the grave for a thousand and seven years longer than the others who are sitting around you right here today. And when your resurrection does come, it will be to an eternity in hell. But it doesn't have to be. Look at verse number 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be in that resurrection. We can be in the resurrection to eternal life. If you're in that group, why don't you, why don't you just fly to Jesus now? Why don't you turn to him now? Why don't you, when we sing in just a moment, don't even touch your hymn book. Why don't you just determine right now that when we begin to sing, you're going to come to the front and you're going to kneel and you're going to kneel before God and his people and you're going to say, I need Jesus. As Amy sang, I need thee every hour. We all need thee. And none of us can see the resurrection to life without Christ. Believe, receive, trust, call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. That your resurrection might be to heaven rather than to hell.